As Elaine said, 1 John chapter 1, we're coming down to it, verses 8 through 10 today. Um, and to open our time, I wanted to read over you a passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says this, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because of the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who, uh, who do what is evil. Diving into John today. John has started his written word to the church and, and by extension to us church in his day and now to us, he started this uh, book with a very clear goal that he wanted to impart um, to the church, to us, um, what he desires for the reader, if you will. And we find that goal starting in verses three and four, which Mike covered um, previously, says what we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So John's goal in writing is that the reader would have fellowship with him and with the church and with God. It's a very warm goal. John, his character, he um, has this desire for the church and it's a very warm goal. He desires fellowship. John has tasted true fellowship. Keep in mind, he knows Jesus personally. He has tasted true fellowship with Christ, and he wants more. And he wants the reader to have more. He has this desire for more fellowship. He wants the reader, and, and by extension us, to join in that fellowship. It's a very encouraging, I want you with us attitude. This is John, I want you with us. I've tasted and seen that it's good. I know that it's good. I've experienced it. And I want you out of the cold dark. There's a place for you in the warm light. For you in the warm light. Light is exactly the picture he chooses to use. In fact, as we go down to verse 7, he says, um, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He uses the word all advisedly. So there's the answer. Walk in the light. That is what causes this fellowship. This is what creates this fellowship is walking in the light. Walking in the light brings us into this great and desirable thing that he has, which is fellowship with each other and with the father. So what's the light? What does walking in the light mean? What is the light? It's things, as John said, that he and the other disciples have seen and heard. Well, seen and heard from who? Jesus. Christ himself. Not their own 12-step program. This wasn't drummed up in a night. But things that they saw and heard from the Messiah himself. They walked with him. They lived it. God in human flesh told us and showed us these things. And that brings us to today's passage. Verses 8 through 10. He's going to tell us this first step, if you will. First thing that we need to know and do in order to have fellowship with each other and with God. This is the light. This is part of the light. 
1 John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray over this passage. Lord, as your truth is being told to us, um, we, we come with open hearts to receive it. We come with a desire that um, no voice from any man would steer us in any direction other than straight to your word, straight to your truth, and that we would accept your truth at face value. We would examine ourselves to see if we are aligned with your truth. Lord, because we also desire that fellowship both with each other and with you. Um, we ourselves have tasted and seen your goodness and we desire more and we desire strong fellowship. So as we come with open hearts to hear from you, would you speak to us this morning? Yes, this in your name. Amen. So verse eight, he starts off, and he's going to talk about sin um, in a couple ways here, but he starts off by saying, um, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. He starts with this deception, and it's a self-deception. We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It would be true, of course, to say that we are deceiving those who hear us as well, that um, it's deceptive to the world, but he's focusing on the fact that we're actually deceiving ourselves as well. To say that we don't have sin is self-harm on an intellectual level. We are actually self-deceiving, and the truth is not in us. So John says that claiming to not have sin is self-harm, and there's a couple ways and glaring issues that that arise with self-deception. There's like a seed that grows, and as it gets bigger, worse things start to branch out from it, and we start to find ourselves in a worse and worse place as we deny sin. The first thing is the clear and obvious one. It's a lack of awareness, a lack of awareness. We have this lack of awareness if we are self-deceived. Being fully deceived means that we don't know we're off course. Somebody who is fully deceived is not aware that they're going in the wrong direction. It's, de it's deception. They're deceived. They actually are not aware that they're off course. It's hard to fix things if you're not aware that you're off course. And so as time passes, we go further and further off course. And this is true in life. It's true spiritually. You think of like how you navigate the waters before we had compasses. And uh, well, even when we had compasses, even now, you can navigate the waters by looking to the North Star, right? But if you pick the wrong star of the sky, you're not going north. And not only are you not going north, you're progressively getting farther away from north. It's not just an immediate, oh, I'm off by this much. It's like, you know, you're slowly going this way, actually. You're getting wider and wider and wider. So going the wrong direction over time takes us further and further off course. Further and further down a sin-producing path. If we are not humble and honest about the reality of sin and the fact that we ourselves are fallible, sinful creatures, we are going to increase the amount of sin that we produce throughout time. And it's just going to compound. That time slowly builds, shores up, if you will, a second and considerably worse issue. I think that, that seed continues to grow. And as it blooms, we get this new worse issue. 
and that is false confidence. False confidence. Being off course is not great. But if you are not confident that you're on course, you're going to have an ear to somebody who wants to guide and correct you back to you. You look up in the sky and you say, okay, I think it's that star. And then somebody comes along who knows it's actually that star. You're going to be more receptive to hearing that. But if as time passes, you continue to follow the wrong star, you continue to not admit the sin in your heart, you're going to start building up. You're going to start believing fully in your heart. And you're going to have these walls of defense. You're going to have a false confidence And worst of all, we'll be skeptical of anybody that says otherwise. If somebody comes up to me and say, I have an issue with um, being gracious, being a gracious host. And my whole life, I have believed that I'm a gracious host. The first time somebody says, you're not a gracious host, I'm not going to believe them. I'm going to be skeptical. So I've got my whole life. I've got this false confidence that I'm a gracious host. And so I'm skeptical of anybody who says otherwise. On the other hand, the first time that I'm not a gracious host, if somebody comes and says, that was kind of rough, you're not that gracious. (laughs) I might be more receptive to hear it because I haven't built up this false confidence. These walls aren't um, large enough yet. So my question I had to ask myself, I was reading through this because if you're deceived, you're not aware you're deceived. (laughs) I had to ask myself, what am I confident in? Where's my confidence laying? What do I believe that I'm on course with? And am I right? Am I correct? Am I actually, um, for that example, a gracious host? Am I a kind person? Do I have an ear that's quick to listen and a mouth that's slow to speak? These things that come into my mind as I have to question myself, am I really on course or am I deceived? Because if I am deceived, I'm not going to know it. As I thought through this, I had to recall and I remembered um, a situation with a, a dear friend of mine who loves the Lord, an incredibly strong believer, somebody I look up to, um, who was known for a lot of great things. And they felt like they had this one little thing. That they had come to this point where they thought, I think there's this area in my life that's not Christ-like. And they, they weren't sure, but they kind of had this idea that maybe I'm not Christ-like in this way. And um, the way they went about discovering it was inspiring to me. Because what they did was they went around to everybody they knew who they could trust, who would be honest with them, and asked, is, is this what you would mark me for, or is this what you would mark me for? With the concern that I'm not just going to assume I'm Right? I'm not just going to assume that what I have built my life on is is true. I want to know if I'm really actually marked by this attitude. I want to know if if maybe, worst case scenario, I'm actually marked by this attitude and I need change in my heart. And, And that impressed me so much because that's an awareness of the fact that we could be wrong about how we believe we're walking with the Lord. We could be wrong about sin in our lives. And in order to figure that out, it's not as simple as just having a light bulb moment. You start to get an inkling of something. You have to go investigate. It takes work. It takes effort. We have to decide to put in the work to root sin out of our lives before it continues to grow. Or if it's already gigantic, to cut it down, pull the roots out. 
what John is saying here, he's saying with great confidence. He, um, he is speaking what he claims to be full truth. This is not his opinion. And, and so as time continues to pass, there's this other thing that grows up. And this is even worse. This is the third thing in this, that, I, that I put in my notes today as I you know, thought through the process of the way sin grows and the way a false confidence with deception grows. And, and this third thing um, begins to happen and it's resignation. It's resignation. It's a letting go of, if you will. It, it's the feeling that right or wrong, this is the path I chose for my life and I'm already this far down the road. So I'm not changing it now. This is where my life has taken me. This is who I am. Okay, if I'm a little too sassy, my friends have put up with me this long. I guess it's going to be okay. You know, it's this idea that at this point, there's no way we're changing it now. This is where I am. This is where I will stay. But with great confidence, John says we can't stay there. According to what... We have seen and heard, and, and by the way, the, 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 the great name that he's dropping here is God Almighty, <laughs> creator of the whole universe, the author and finisher and perfecter of our faith. It's God himself. It's not second or third hand. He says we saw it with our own eyes from the source. This is what God himself says. We cannot deceive ourselves. Anyone who says they don't have sin is deceiving themselves. Anyone, he says. They're sailing for the wrong horizon, and the truth is not in them. I want you to notice the focus, the, the, um, the focus he's put in this um, first verse before we move on. The focus that he's talking about when, when we say that we don't have sin, the focus he's showing is that it is self-inflicted harm. It's an internal harm of the soul if you are it has consequence on your own your own internal um, soul and it breaks fellowship with other believers and with lord so this humbling truth is that we have sin it's only pride and arrogance and fear that keeps us from the honest truth but the cool thing is that honest truth has an incredible answer to it we really do have sin in our hearts we really do and it really does uh, affect us directly we actually harm ourselves with sin and with denying sin. But there's an incredible promise given to us in verse 9. And it's just one of the most encouraging verses to smack right in between two verses about sin. And it's still about sin. But he says, if we confess in verse 9 our sins, if we confess our sins, he's already told us that we are absolutely guilty of sin. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. Not maybe, not probably, not on a good day. He is faithful and, and this word's amazing, righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousnesses. The word righteous, I had to focus in on this because this is amazing. God is not compromising to forgive us. He's righteous to do it. He has every moral right because Jesus bought and paid for that right to cover us so that we could have fellowship with him and with each other. He is 
the perfect judge, and he has judged correctly to forgive us our sins. It actually, because of his sacrifice, it becomes the truth. So he is, he's not compromising. He is righteous to forgive us our sins. It's an amazing truth and reality. We were on death row. We were all on death row, completely condemned correctly. And then the judge's own son whipped in and took our seat. Why would he do that? Hebrews 12.2 tells us that it was for the joy set before him. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, he says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. Despising the shame, didn't enjoy it. Despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he was victorious. The joy set before him was to bring you and me and John and all that came before us and all that will come after us. There will be more after us. There were plenty before us. All together for the cause in fellowship, for the cause of righteousness, to restore righteousness to a broken creation. We are his joy and he has every right to forgive us our sins because of his sacrifice on the cross and nobody in the world anywhere out throughout history can say otherwise. He is 100% just and righteous to forgive us our sins because of his sacrifice on the cross. All this incredible goodness available to us. It's amazing. So much encouragement. And all we have to do John's saying here is to be honest about our sin. That's really it. We must be honest about our sin because if we model deception, we'll breed deception. And as we come together as people and as we spend time with our neighbors and our families and in our workplaces and uh, uh, church, what we model is what we produce. So if we ourselves are breeding are modeling deception, we are generating more deception. We are encouraging others to act the same way. If we model righteousness, we'll breed righteousness. The opposite is true. We must walk in the light. And in order to walk in the light, we must, in fact, we are required to be honest. It is a requirement to be honest about sin in our own hearts. And for some reason, that's the tool that works that inspires others. It looks like a mess. It feels like a mess. Walking up and just being honest with somebody about sin in your heart is one of the ugliest things in the moment. It feels awful to be that open and honest and humble with others, to, to, to just talk about reality as it is before God's eyes is the messiest, ugliest thing. And it, for some reason, praise God, it encourages others to do the same. It opens up, it breeds this culture of, of um, humility and confession amongst each other. And it elevates the glory of, of Jesus. We glorify Jesus more when we realize our status without him. The more we understand our status without him, it just starts to elevate Jesus. And in our minds as a group, we start to become more congruitous and we start to join in fellowship 
in worship and adoration for the Savior. And again, unfortunately, the opposite is true. Claiming to be without sin or even maybe deflecting. I've, met, I've known people like this, deflecting our own sin to the point that it looks to others like we don't believe we have sin. Maybe if somebody asked us directly, oh, of course, of course I'm a sinner. But the way we live our lives is so disingenuous. We act so much like we're perfect that it actually starts to create a fellowship culture that keeps sin in the dark because if they're not going to admit they got sin, I'm not either. I'm not going to be the weirdo in the room that looks like the sinful creature and everybody else is shiny and new. Keeps sin in the dark and it keeps pride right in the light. It may not look like pride. Maybe it looks like humility, false humility. But if we are not honest about the fact that we have sin in our hearts, then we are putting pride right in the light. And that's what's going to grow. That's what's going to grow. It cultivates pharisaical fellowship. It's what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus had strong words for the Pharisees. You look back in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 through 28. Um, Jesus had this to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Whitewashed tombs for those who are proclaiming anything other than the fact that we are broken, sinful creatures in desperate need of a Savior who came to save us. Verse 8 told us what denial of sin does to us internally, how it affects us on a personal level. Now, verse 10 is actually going to tell us what denial of sin says about God, because when we deny sin, we actually say something about God. You see, because God said that we are sinners. So in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not, again, in us. We are betraying God when we act as though we don't have sin or we say that we don't have sin. We are actually mocking the creator who said we do. We put ourselves at enmity with him. And I see verse 9 that we just read as a setup to increase the impact of verse 10. You see, because if we believe the truth that John declares that our sin is righteously washed away by and only by the acts of our, of our creator, our, our uh, God, our savior. If we actually believe what he says, that we are cleansed because of God's goodness, then we ought to be a doubly offended by the truth of verse 10. We should be doubly offended by the idea of lying about and mocking God and calling him a liar. Our denial and hiding of the truth, we are making God out to be a liar. We are betraying our own savior, the one that came to us while we were dead in our sin and sacrificed himself for us. We're betraying him. And that should be more offensive than ever to us because of verse nine, because of the truth of verse, of verse nine. More than that, we are also claiming to know better than God. 
If you claim that you don't have sin when God said you do have sin, then what you're saying is, I know better than God Almighty. I know better than the creator of the universe who, who holds everything in his hand to galaxies we can't even see, not just with the naked eye, but not even with our fancy telescopes that we put together with materials that he created on this earth. We're saying we know better than him. It's offensive. We are minimizing his sacrifice for our own pride. And our example is going to breed a church culture that continues to smear the name of Jesus. Just like the Pharisees did. All these years before us, just like the Pharisees did. This pride, this self-righteousness mocks the name of God and it breeds a culture of more self-righteousness. I've been in churches where the goal of everybody was to look perfect. And so everybody looked perfect and nobody dealt with sin. And I have seen, I was a young man at the time, but I have seen exactly the damage that is done. God's name is mocked. God's name is not revered in that community. And, and the people suffer under this false pretense that they're perfect because inside, I think there's a realization that it's not true. The honest and optimistic motivation of this truth that we are given in 1 John is that um, it, it really is a focus on the joy of fellowship because that's the goal of this whole thing is to reunite, as John said, fellowship with one another and with God, with each other. It's the joy of fellowship restored. It, we, we can get, it's easy to get hung up on just the mourning over sin because we are supposed to mourn over sin. As Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn in Matthew on his Sermon on the Mount. We are supposed to mourn over sin and we're supposed to be honest about sin and we are supposed to deal with sin. But the joy comes after. The joy of um, the, he talks about in verses four, he says, so that our joy may be complete. That joy, key fundamental in a believer's joy is that they have real, open, honest fellowship with one another. We get this common fellowship, this unity. And that's the fundamental joy that John is writing about. It's the goal in his writing. And he's saying that a necessary component to this joy is fellowship. Is a humble acknowledgement of our own sin before for the Lord, and, and this is key, a confidence, a strong confidence that he really is faithful and just to forgive. You see, because that middle verse, verse nine, that little middle verse is just as true as the other two. He really is faithful and just to forgive everything that we have ever done. And we must have confidence in that. Because the joy part doesn't just happen when we acknowledge sin. The joy comes in knowing that we are truly forgiven and the joy of each other's fellowship. And that's what frees us to serve in the way that God has gifted us. That acknowledgement, that understanding, that is the humbling key that allows us to serve God with our whole hearts because we understand our position. And our position is that we are not God, we are serving God. We're not fighting for a victory. We're fighting from Jesus's victory. That truth is what allows us to serve him in our communities, our churches, our families. I have sat down with 
kids um, in youth ministry often and have had to be completely honest with them as they're, they're, they are struggling with things. And the beautiful thing about kids is they haven't built up that, that false confidence yet. They haven't really built up this wall of um, self-belief, if you will, yet. Uh, most of the time, they're incredibly unconfident. In fact, they, they feel like the whole world's caving in a lot of times. And what has encouraged them the most is me being able to share with them my same experience. Look, I know you're struggling with this. So did I. Or in some cases, so do I. Life is hard. We do struggle. And as I reveal to them the path forward of Jesus, it ignites them. This is the fellowship we get to share in. You're never stronger with somebody than the moment you're sitting there and sharing your broken weaknesses together and encouraging each other towards the source of our strength. That is the strongest moment we'll ever have. That's what gives us the ability to grow gracious in love in our hearts for others who are also sinning. This humility is what frees us up to have fellowship with one another in full recognition that we are all redeemed by the same blood of the same lamb. We all walk up to the same foot of the same cross, all equal, all in desperate need of a redeeming savior. I want to close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. I um, have read a uh, a fair amount of C.S. Lewis's work, and I have not read this quote before. I don't know where it's from, or if I did, I forgot it, but when I found it, I loved it. And um, C.S. Lewis famously um, really pushed forward this idea that pride is the common sin amongst man that is that needs to be toppled, that needs to be crushed. He, he saw it as the, almost the holy grail, if you will, of sin that every man carries. Every, and I say man, I mean mankind, all men, all women. We all carry with us this sense of pride that wants us to uh, defend ourselves, not be vulnerable, to um, uh, lift ourselves up, this pride, this self-preservational pride. And you'll, through this whole passage, you'll notice that there's been a common thread that pride has been connected to all of them. If we say we don't have sin, it's the pri- it is pride that, that leads us to that. And, and if we say, um, if we pretend that we don't have sin, even if we say we have sin, again, that's a pride thing. We want others to see us up on this pedestal. And so C.S. Lewis said this, specifically in regards to repentance. He says, repentance means unlearning all the self-conceit, and self-will that we have been training ourselves into. It means, and he uses strong language here advisedly, it means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. And I tell you, I feel that. Because to be humble and to sit across from somebody and be honest about the fact that I'm a broken creature that is only here because I was saved by the redeeming grace of Jesus and that I continually day in and day out need his forgiveness and his daily bread and his uh, guidance for my life. To sit down with somebody and openly admit that, to take myself off that pedestal and put myself where I belong, which is at the foot of the cross, feels like killing something inside. It really does. 
And, and if we're going to continue in this walk of humility and love with one each other, we're going to have to continually make sure that that pride is dead and, and that we are continually going to the cross, continually recognizing Jesus as the status that he has, which is full, complete Savior. Without any of our input, he saved us. And so that is what we have to kill in ourselves. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what am I confident in? And am I correct? Is it God honoring? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for a sacrifice that we could never have drummed up on our own. Salvation that, um, Lord, we as a, we as a, as a race, we're not looking for. Um, Lord, we recognize that the sin and pride in our lives is what gets us in the way of having fellowship with each other, fellowship with you, and, and accomplishing your purposes. Lord, we desire as a, as a church body in a community that needs more of you, we desire to be a tool that brings more of you into this community. So continue to humble us, Lord. If we start to stray off path, bring someone into our lives um, to point it out and recall to our minds areas of sin that we're not addressing. Um, encourage us, strengthen us. Send us out into this community so that we can be effective for you. We ask this all in your name. Amen.